Welcome to the sermon podcast of Resurrection Community Church in Virginia Beach. We seek to connect people to God and one another through His Word, and hope this sermon brings you closer to God. All right, now we're going to turn to John chapter 7, uh, starting at verse 53, and read John 7, 53 through 8, 11. Um, and and I, I have to, I can't not mention, if you're looking at it in the Bible, you're looking at this and you're confused, uh, you may see a, a note in your Bible, in most Bibles, that say, the earliest manuscripts do not include 753 through 811. And you may say, what in the world does that mean? And if I started to fully explain that, now we would still be here several hours later, and you would have learned some things of interest, but not really what you came for this morning. So I will just say that the, the, the beauty of God's word for us is that it has been preserved in remarkable ways. And one of the remarkable ways that God's word has been preserved is that most ancient documents come down through history with just very few copies. You know, we have like one copy of this, of, you know, Plato and Thucydides and all these things, these people. But we have hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of copies of the Old and New Testaments. The thing is, all these copies were made by hand. And so in all these copies, some of them are parts and this and that, and they're passed down by hand. Well, with all of them, we can put together the original text really, really well. But in an effort to be honest about that, sometimes we have to put notes in that say, you know, some of the earliest copies of the text of John don't have this story here. But most scholars, as they've tried to work this out, believe pretty much everybody agrees that whether or not this particular story was originally placed right here in John's Gospel by John the disciple of Jesus, it is almost certainly a true Jesus story. It is something that actually happened, an authentic act of history. It's possible that it was somewhere else in John's Gospel. It's possible that it may have been in Luke's Gospel and got moved over to John's Gospel. All of these things are possible. We don't really know but the, the testimony of the church now for thousands of years has been that this is a true Jesus story and belongs in the scripture. So we see it today as God's word. And as you see, you will see that it, it reflects the Jesus we know and love. So with that, you know, last week, last week, if you were here, you got the Westminster Confession and the word perspicuity. This week, you got an introduction to what we call textual criticism. So, you know, we're just we're going somewhere. I don't know where we're going. <laughs> let's, go to, let's go to the Word. That's, that's a better place to go. I'll read from John chapter 7, starting at verse 53. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. And placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. So what do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? 
She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this beautiful story of Jesus on earth, bringing you to earth in full glory and grace. We pray now that as we reflect on these words together, that you would sink these words deep into our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit. They would not merely be information for our heads, but truly transformation for our lives, changing the way that we think, the way that we feel, the way that we live. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I, some of you know uh, that before I set out on my calling to pastoral ministry, I was a high school math teacher. And some of you like that. Yeah, we've, I think we do have some, some mathematically-minded folks in the room, some engineering-minded folks in the room. Some of you don't like that at all. Uh, some of you say that I'm your worst nightmare, and you're, you're going back to high school now and thinking, really, you were that guy? Um, but personally, no surprise, I loved math. I still love math. And one of the great things about math is that math is very black and white. Math is all about truth. You get it right or you get it wrong. There's not a lot of gray there. When you do things right, you know that you're right. When you're solving the equations, they come out, everything works. There's no gray. And we like that. We like that. Many of us like that. But here's the problem with all that truth. The problem is that, as many of you may have experienced in math class, you didn't always get it right. And even as I, a pretty good math student in high school, I did go on to become a math teacher after all, but as I was getting my degree in math in college, I found that at a certain level, I was not getting everything right either. And I was getting a lot of things wrong. And as much as I like math, you know what I don't like? I don't like to be wrong. Some of you may know that. My wife is in the back. So I don't, I don't like to be wrong. None of us like to be wrong. Nobody likes to be wrong. But the problem is, we're all wrong a lot of the time. And so as much as many of us have this desire for truth, black and white, just tell me what is and I'm gonna do it. I'm gonna do it right every time. If we're honest, we know that we can't do it. And that's why one of the most beautiful verses in the Gospel of John, back at the very beginning, is it says that Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. Full of grace and truth. And what we need is not just truth. But of course, we don't just need grace either. Grace says that, oh, it's fine. You can do whatever you want. Everything just falls apart. We do need some math in the world. Otherwise, nothing happens, right? There's no standards. But what we have here in the beginning of John chapter 8 is Jesus as the living embodiment of truth and grace. Truth and grace in one man combined, in living color. And this is a challenge for us because truth and grace seem to be opposed to us. We like right and wrong, but where, where does this grace, if we're going to be truthful, how can we be gracious? If we're telling people that they're wrong, where's the grace in that? It's hard to do. And if we're showing grace, are we really being honest about what's true? But only in Jesus do we rightly find truth and grace. And isn't that what we need? Isn't that what we all need is truth and grace? Because as much as we like black and white, right and wrong, 
we're all caught in our sin. And what we're going to see here as we dig in more into John chapter 8 is while there's one very clear sinner, the woman caught in adultery, she's not the only one caught in sin in this passage. And I think each one of us can find ourselves somewhere in here. And what each of us needs as we look at ourselves reflected in this story, each of us needs the truth and grace of Jesus. Because when we meet Jesus, when we receive his truth and grace, then we can rightly call him Lord. And then we can extend his truth and grace to other people. That is what we need. So let's dig in and see three characters in this story. One character, of course, the most obvious, I mean, well, other than Jesus. Jesus is the one that comes full of truth and grace. But we're going to look at three characters that are responding to Jesus here. First, of course, the woman who receives Jesus' truth and grace. But then there's also the Pharisees. And Jesus has truth and grace for the Pharisees as well. And then the third one here that you can miss is there's a crowd. Jesus was teaching people in the temple. There were people watching as the Pharisees come in and bring this woman caught in adultery. And they're watching too. And so Jesus' truth and grace is for them. So Jesus' truth and grace for the woman. Jesus brings truth and grace, truth and grace for the Pharisees. Jesus brings truth and grace for the crowd. First, for the woman. This is, of course, the central character of the story facing Jesus, being brought in. And, and many of us, we can identify. We can identify her with the feeling of shame. Because more clearly than anybody else in this story, she's wrong. She has been caught in the act of adultery. There is no question that this woman has sinned. At no point does she try to claim her innocence. She, doesn't, she has nothing to say. She is caught. She is caught publicly. And she is caught in a, in a culture, in, certainly according to the Jewish law, they're not, there were some technicalities they were wrong about. But they're, altogether, they're not wrong. Adultery under the Old Testament law was a capital crime. It was punishable by death. And so this woman is caught in shame. And so then we have to say, are there times that we can identify? Are there times where we feel that we've been caught in shame? Some of you know that intimately. Some of you know that you have made big mistakes. Our question, uh, one of our, our membership questions that we asked earlier, do you see yourself, do you recognize that you're a sinner in the sight of God and all that? Uh, one of my pastor friends revised that for children to say, are you a really big sinner? Are you a really big sinner? But this woman was a really big sinner. We don't know the details. We don't know exactly what happened, but, but she was a really big sinner. And so what happens when she comes face to face with Jesus? So what happens? So first, you know, the, they come in the Pharisees, the, the scribes bring her in, bring in this accusation. Jesus, what should we do with this woman? We caught her. Shall we follow the law and stone her? And who knows? I mean, Jesus is in tough shape if he says no. He's going against the Old Testament law. So he does his thing. We'll, we'll, get, more, we'll get more to his thing in a minute. But, but Jesus does his thing, and he kind of, what seems to us, he kind of puts them off. He writes on the ground, and they're like, yeah, yeah. And he writes on the ground again, or then he says, let any of you who is without sin cast the first stone. And her eyes open up a little bit. Well, maybe. He writes on the ground again, and they walk out. 
and she stands up, and no one is left. Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And what's the problem? Jesus is without sin. So can anybody cast the stone at this woman? Yes. Jesus is without sin. And then, but listen to her response. Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. No one, Lord. If you've been here as we've been going through John, you might recognize that Lord is not the way that people have generally been addressing Jesus. People have been calling him teacher. That's what they said in verse 4. That's what the Pharisees said, teacher. His disciples have called him rabbi. He's a rabbi. He's a teacher. He has words. He has truth from God. But she recognizes him as Lord. And when the Lord comes down, the Lord comes down writing on the ground. Who writes with his finger? You know who writes with his finger? God himself wrote with his finger. It's what it says back in the book of Exodus that God gave the Ten Commandments, the tablets of stone to Moses, written by the finger of God. And so when Jesus writes with his finger, he says to this woman, caught in the act of adultery, a really big sinner, I am here, full of truth and grace, and you are guilty. And no one else has condemned you, but I have every right to condemn you. So how can he say, neither do I condemn you? Because Jesus the one who has every right to throw the stone says, I will take the stones and throw them at myself. For this is the only way that truth and grace can come together. Truth and grace cannot come together by minimizing the truth, by saying, oh, it's okay, that's fine. That's not what Jesus is saying. Neither do I condemn you. He's not saying it's not a big deal. He's not saying you're not wrong. He's not saying you're not guilty. If you feel guilty and ashamed this morning, there, there's a reason for that. Jesus does not say you have done nothing wrong, but he says, neither do I condemn you because I will condemn myself. And I, as God, as the one who wrote the law, as the one who is perfect and has followed it perfectly, have the right to take those stones that should be thrown at you and throw them at myself. And so when Jesus says, neither do I condemn you, he is looking forward to his death on the cross. For that is the only way that truth and grace can come together. That is how it works. When we feel ashamed, when we feel guilty, when we know we have done wrong, we look at Jesus full of truth and grace, and he says, yes, you're guilty. And no, I'm not condemning you. For I will take that condemnation. I will take that punishment for on myself. Now you go and sin no more. For as I take that condemnation on myself, I tell you to take my life, my sinless life, and go and carry it out. That's what he's saying. So, woman, I will take your place, and I will take the punishment that can come from God alone. For Jesus offers truth and grace to this woman. He offers truth and grace to all of us who know our sins. It's a beautiful and wonderful thing if you know this morning, if you know your sin, if you are deeply aware of your shame and guilt, that Jesus will free you from that, and you can offer it up to him. But there's more. There's more, because truth and grace here is not just for the woman. It's also for the Pharisees, which at, at first, when you look at this, the Pharisees seem like the bad guys, and, and the Pharisees are the bad guys. 
It's very clear here. John makes it quite clear how the Pharisees are the bad guys. The first clearest part of their bad guys-ness is they brought a woman who has been caught in adultery. And that's a problem because you cannot catch a woman in the act of adultery by herself. And the law did not command them to stone women committing adultery. It commanded them to execute all who committed adultery. So this is clearly some kind of setup because they should have brought, if they were just looking to carry out the law, there would have been two people there. But that's not what happened. So that's the first way in which they're bad guys here. The second way is that he says explicitly in verse 6, this they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. They were really not terribly interested in justice. But what they were doing was putting Jesus in this pickle where if he said, no, don't stone her, then he's violating the law of Moses and not a faithful teacher. But if he says, yes, do stone him, he has a problem because actually the ones in charge here are the Romans. And the Romans really did not allow the Jews to carry out capital punishment on their own. And the Romans, I mean, we kind of know about the Romans. They really didn't care about adultery that much. It was, not, it was not a capital crime for the Romans. So he's caught here, as the Pharisees often tried to catch Jesus, caught between the Jewish law and tradition and the will of the people and the Roman authorities, and they're trying to trap him. So they're clearly the bad guys. But how does Jesus show truth and grace to the Pharisees, those who are trying to use the law, use the truth to try to catch people and make themselves look good and take down their enemies and elevate themselves above others? What's his truth and grace? What could he have done? Just imagine the alternate. He could have said all those things I just said. He could have said, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites. What are you doing? This is not right. He could have told them all their sins. I mean, he said, let him who was without sin cast the first stone. He could have just started listing sins. He was God after all, right? Like he could have listed it. In fact, there's an old tradition. I don't, I don't know if this is really supported by the text that he was writing their sins in the dirt. Because um, he could have, right? He knew. But more he was writing, and I, I think more it's the finger of God in the dirt saying, I know the laws. Actually, I wrote the Ten Commandments. I know this all better than you do. That's the truth. But the grace, he didn't say that. He didn't throw it in their face. He showed them. He demonstrated. And so even for those of us who are Pharisees, even for those of us who are resistant to recognizing our own sin, even those of us who set ourselves up in judgment over other people, whether we do it out loud, proclaiming our righteousness, proclaiming the badness of people out there, or whether we just do it in our hearts, looking down in our hearts on people who are not quite as righteous as us, not quite as good as us. And we're Pharisees, setting ourselves up, exalting ourselves over others, and Jesus comes to us too with truth and grace, giving us the opportunity to repent, to where the Pharisees and those of us who feel like Pharisees can recognize that really we should be in the place of the woman. That the place of the woman caught in the shame of being a really big sinner is not exactly where we want to be, but it is where we are truly. And so even if we identify more with the Pharisees, the truth and grace for us is God's kindness, not smiting us down, not calling us out with flashing letters from heaven, but kindly leading us to repentance, to see our sin more and more. As God puts people in our lives to reflect our sin back to us, sometimes this happens in marriage. 
Now, this, is, this is one of those things. There's a, there's a great book about marriage uh, called Sacred Marriage. It says, what, is the, what if the, part, the, the tagline on it, which is really most of what I remember for it, so just remember this, and then you can save yourself the book. But the tagline on it is, what if marriage was not meant to make us happy, but to make us holy? What if marriage was not meant to make us happy, but to make us holy? And when you think about it like that, it's not just marriage. What if our church membership was not meant to make us happy, but to make us holy? Where all of us, big sinners and Pharisees alike, come together and rub up against one another and get mad at each other and get angry and get jealous. And in that, those of us who have trouble seeing our sin sometimes are brought to repentance to say, you know what? Maybe I'm more of a sinner than I realized. And I am so grateful for the kindness of Jesus. The kindness of Jesus that does not smite us down, but shows us our sin and allows us to repent and turn to him. That the Pharisees among us too might go from being saying, teacher, work out the problems. Maybe we can trap you. Maybe we can catch you. To looking up from the dirt and saying, Lord, no. No one else has condemned me. Will you please have mercy on me? and receiving the mercy and grace of Jesus. So for the big sinner, the woman, Jesus brings truth and grace. For the Pharisees who set themselves up over others, Jesus brings truth and grace. And finally, and more briefly, for the crowd. For it doesn't say much about the crowd, but here's the truth and grace for the crowd. Everything Jesus does, he's doing it for those around him too. He's doing it for them to see. And so for us as the crowd watching, Jesus lays the choice before us. Who are we going to be today? That is the question of the crowd. Are you going to join with the Pharisees to continue to exalt yourself over people, to continue to try to lay traps for people? Or are you going to admit that you are, in fact, with the woman? Caught in the act, caught as a sinner, desperately pleading for the grace and mercy of Jesus. It's the crowd, the choice is for the crowd, the choice is for us. And you can see here, Jesus is left alone with them. The crowd makes their choice. And really, I'd say the crowd makes their choice right. For as they went away from the oldest to the youngest. Why is that? We don't know. But it seems likely that the older you are, the more you realize the truth about yourself. And that in that moment, the crowd realized, all those who were watched said, I too am a sinner. And I am not throwing stones. I am so glad that Jesus took those stones for me. So this morning as we worship, a few minutes we'll come to the table and we'll taste and feel that Jesus took the stones for us. As we recognize that we stand condemned, not condemned by other people for all of us are sinners alike, but could rightly be condemned by the Lord, the sinless one, full of truth. But he came full of grace, saying, I will take the condemnation on myself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you love us and care for us. We thank you that Jesus came down full of truth and grace. For we are thankful for your grace. We're thankful for your truth. We pray that you would lead us in the footsteps of this woman to recognize our sin and our shame and yet to go forth and sin no more. Would you strengthen us to do that this week? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.
Now uh, we're going to have a time of reflection and response. Philip is going to play for us, not pray, he's going to play. Um, while we're doing this, I want you to take a few minutes to sit quietly and, and reflect on what God is speaking to you. Uh, this is a time we can respond to him with our offerings. The traditional response of offerings in our worship is to give our money to God of a, the life and labor that he has blessed us with. Uh, you can put offerings in the basket, not, not while he's playing, but when we come up uh, at the end of the service. You can put offerings in the basket or make those through the website. But this is also what the cards are for. Another way that you can respond to God. What is he speaking to you? What do you need to do? What are you to do going out from here today? So you write something on the card, put that in the basket as well uh, at the end. But we're, now we're going to sit, reflect, respond, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. Thank you for listening to this sermon podcast from Resurrection Community Church. To learn more about our church and how you can connect with God and others, please visit resurrectionvb.org.